How do we know that any of this is even true? How do we know? Because couldn't we make up a whole bunch of crazy stories about a man who performed miracles and died a death and was raised to life? How do we know any of that is even true? We could probably reason away the life of Jesus, make excuses for it, make some justifications and say, you know what? It's all fiction. It's all fantasy. That all those miracles he performed, well, some of them are probably just false. Some of them aren't even logical. I mean, how can a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread feed thousands of people with leftovers? It doesn't even make sense. Maybe Jesus was just in the right place at the right time and took credit for something that he really didn't even do. It just, something really cool happened and Jesus said, oh yeah, that was me. I mean, historically, we could prove that Jesus lived. That around 2,000 years ago, a man lived by the name of Jesus. He made some really weird claims about being the son of God and he died on a cross. They crucified him because he was a lunatic. That could have happened. We can historically prove that that happened. There had to be a guy named Jesus 2,000 years ago. Hundreds, thousands of people died on the Roman cross. So what it actually comes down to is the resurrection. Lori, I'm going to switch. It comes down to the resurrection. That it's the critical point in our faith as Christians that we have to wrestle with the fact, is Jesus who he said he was and did he do exactly what he said he would do? Was he the son of God and did he really die on a cross and raise again from the dead? And I wish we had a little bit more time this morning to go into some of the deeper apologetics of why we believe the resurrection to be true. And so I encourage you to um, follow up with some of the podcasts, some of the things that uh, we're putting out. Um, on Friday, Randy explained one of the apologetic arguments about the Roman guards that were posted at the tomb and their account, their story of what happened that night. And if there was any deviation in their story of what or even what happened to those guards, then we could probably disprove the resurrection. And that's on Randy's podcast on YouTube or, uh, you know, uh, it's called uh, we, Let's Find Out Together. And then this Wednesday on Salty Saints, uh, Zach is putting out an episode on the crucifixion and, or on the resurrection and further apologetic proof of how we know that this actually did happen through eyewitness accounts and historical proof. But this morning, I just want to ask a simple question. What if the resurrection never happened? What if it was false? What if it never happened? Where would we be today? Because in the days following Jesus' death, his disciples were nowhere to be found. Then on Friday night after Jesus died, it wasn't the disciples who took his body from the cross 
and buried it in the tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, high-ranking Jewish officials who were scared to go to before Pilate and just ask for his body. And on Sunday morning, it wasn't the disciples running to the tomb, it was the ladies. After Jesus' death, his followers were scattered. They were going into hiding. They were afraid of what might be happening to them. That after his death, Jesus' story is really kind of ending poorly, isn't it? Without the resurrection, the disciples were just on their way back to their old lives, to the old normal. We know what an old normal is, right? That's where they went back. After three years, if the resurrection had not happened, there is no hope of Jesus' life and death making a big splash on history. It's a pivotal point in human history. Calendars are marked by Jesus. I mean, how many people over the ages, over the last hundred years, thousand years, how many people have made claims to be the Messiah? Some special revelation from God, and I'm, I'm the Messiah, and then they die, and nothing else happens. Their followers scatter. That person's name might be written into a history book. Some record might be kept, but there's no pivotal change, even in the disciples, even the followers of those false Christs. See, without the resurrection, the story of Jesus would just crash and burn. That was the path that it was on. But Mark, in his gospel, we've been studying over the last three or four weeks the gospel of Mark, chapters 15 and 16, the last few days of Jesus' life. We're going to read this morning from chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, where Mark describes the resurrection. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to that. Uh, scripture will be on the screen as well. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. That Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, the mother, or Mary, the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so that they could announce Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. And so the women fled the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And that's where the Gospel of Mark ends. That there are other alternate endings in our Bibles. Some translations add them in, some footnote them, and say that these, uh, these verses, 9 through 20, were, aided, were added later. Maybe Mark finished it later. Maybe he got distracted. I don't know. Maybe somebody else wrote it just to say, Mark, you need a nice tidy ending to your gospel. You don't have 
more, we need more evidence of the crucifixion and the resurrection in your gospel. So let's add a few more verses in. Because some of those verses come from the Great Commission in Matthew. And those verses aren't, um, they're not inconsistent with the rest of God's word. So they're not malicious intent. They just were not in the earliest manuscripts. And so the most likely ending to Mark is just this. Verse 8. Jesus is risen, but the ladies left trembling, scared, and bewildered. See, Mark is providing an abrupt ending for us. Because the whole point of his gospel, of his book, is focused on the shocking claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And that he was going to come to suffer and be crucified for our sin and reveal God's love through the cross. And then three days later, he would rise again from the grave, defeating death and sin through his own death and resurrection. The lack of closure in Mark's gospel forces us to wrestle with this claim. It's like Mark is drawing a line in the sand and he's, and he's saying, you know, throughout this book, I've shown you all the things that Jesus has done, all the things that Jesus has said, how he lived out his last seven days who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Will you accept Jesus as your crucified king, or are you going to run from the tomb scared as well? Do you believe that God came to suffer at the hands of his very own creation? The creator God who created man became like us and then was tortured, spat upon, and crucified by his very own creation? Do we believe that Jesus came to rise up against something much bigger and much more destructive than the Roman government? Jesus came to lead a revolution against sin and death, not against the government. They wanted Jesus to just go beat down the doors of the government and make things right. But Jesus was there for a bigger purpose. That the de his death on the cross was the pathway to victory in our lives. Every one of us in this room, myself included, we're sinners. At some point in our life, we have done something wrong. And unfortunately, from this day forward, we're probably going to do at least one more thing, right? Probably a few more, many more. We're all sinners. And God says that the payment, the penalty for sin in our lives is death. And throughout the Old Testament, we see a pattern of sacrifices of lambs and doves and, and calves being sacrificed on the altar to pay the penalty of sin in the lives of the people. And Jesus came to be that once and for all final sacrifice because he was perfect. He was tempted just like us, but he did not sin. And so when he went to the cross, he was the perfect lamb of God sent to the altar to be crucified, sacrificed for our sin. He became the required payment of death for my sin for your sin. And after his death, he proved that death cannot overpower 
God. Mark is ending his book with a line in the sand because he wants us to come face to face with Jesus and decide for ourselves who is Jesus. Is he the son of God or are we going to turn from the tomb, from the resurrection and turn away? See, Jesus was God's son, sent to be the sacrifice for us in the greatest act of love ever known. The Gospel of John in chapter 15, verse 13, records Jesus' own words. That there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus was that greatest act of love. Not only did he lay down his life for his friends, but he also said, love your enemies. And by that, he was laying down his life for his enemies too. So who do you say that Jesus is? The line has been drawn in the sand today. Unfortunately, in this moment, we have to make a choice. Do we believe that he was more than a man? Was he a ridiculous fool making outlandish claims? Or was he the son of God? And did he do exactly what he said he would do? Who is Jesus? If the resurrection hadn't happened, what would Peter's life have been like? Because here in Mark 16, it mentions him by name. The angel says, go tell the disciples and make sure Peter's included. Make sure Peter knows How would Peter's life have been different without the resurrection? Because on Thursday night at the table, at the Last Supper, Jesus prophesied and said, Peter, you are going to deny me. This very night, even in your boldness and your arrogance, you are going to deny me three times. And then Peter's denial was incredibly public. He was around the campfire right outside uh, where the trial was occurring, there in the courtyard. And his denial was particularly harsh as well, that on the third time, he even began cursing and saying, I absolutely do not know that man. Vehemently, publicly denied Jesus three times. But Peter's name is mentioned specifically because Jesus wants him to know, you still have a place among my disciples. That did not disqualify you, Peter. Because later on, as Jesus appeared to the disciples, the disciples happened to be out in a boat fishing early one morning. Jesus was on the shore, called them in, and around a campfire, maybe similar to the one that Peter was around when he denied Jesus, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter is asked that question. And three times, Peter is restored. And Peter becomes a foundational figure in the New Testament church. He becomes just a huge figure in Christianity. And at the end of his life, he's sentenced to die by crucifixion. And Peter says, you know what? I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my Savior. So tradition holds that Jesus or that Peter requested to have his cross turned upside down. And he was crucified upside down. How does a person's life go through change like that? Peter, the hot-headed, 
foot in his mouth, ADD disciple. Look at the change. Look at the transformation. Only the resurrection being true in Peter's life can make that transformation in him. So where are we coming from today? As we woke up, we came into this place ready to celebrate the cross, celebrate the resurrection. It's all wonderful. It's all good. And especially in my life, a lot builds up to this Sunday. But where are we coming from? Are we coming from a place of exhaustion, of overwhelmed, maybe of fear, of being scared about what's coming down the road, maybe disappointed, depressed, disillusioned about, well, I thought life was going to be like this, but this is the hand I'm being dealt. Are you entering into this morning just feeling crushed on the inside, broken-hearted or hopeless that I don't have any other options. This is my only path, and I don't like it. A line has been drawn in the sand today, and as we stand with our toes on the edge of that line, trying to make a decision of who do we say Jesus is, just like Peter, Jesus is welcoming and loving, even in the midst of our denial. Even in the midst of us feeling all of the things that we just talked about, Jesus is welcoming and loving in the midst of all of it. Even if we said, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus welcomes us back. What about Thomas, one of the other disciples? He's kind of one of my favorite. We don't hear a lot about him. But Thomas, we know him as, what's, what's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? Because he, for some reason he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. And the disciples are telling Thomas the story going, oh, you wouldn't believe it. Jesus really is alive. We saw him. And, and Thomas goes, I don't know that I can believe. I've, I got to see it to believe it. So a little bit later, Jesus appears, and he looks at Thomas, and he says, Come, look at my hands. Look at my feet. See the holes. See the scars. And Thomas believes in the resurrection. And so just as Jesus is welcoming and loving in our denial, he's also welcoming and loving in the midst of our doubt. He was not harsh to Thomas. He welcomed him with open arms. Zach and I were talking last night a little bit about doubt. And we asked each other, well, have you ever had any doubts? Absolutely. There have been moments, I, you know, there have been moments in my life that I've wondered, how in the world could all of this story be true? Did Jesus really do all, was Jesus even real? How do we know that the Bible isn't just a fiction writing? There have been doubts there have been doubts of how can I make it to tomorrow? How am I even going to make it to next year? And what about Judas? This isn't in the Bible, but it just kind of made me think about this. What if Judas had waited just a couple more days? 
Because we know that he committed suicide because of his betrayal of Jesus. In his broken heartedness, in his despair, he took his own life. But what if he had waited a couple more days and he had the chance to stand face to face with Jesus? How would Jesus have responded? Because here's Judas, who was one of the 12 disciples. Jesus looked at him at one point and said, come follow me. And that's a decision that a disciple does not take lightly. He walked away from his old life and gave three years to following Jesus. Jesus was his rabbi, full of honor and respect. And Judas was a revolutionary. He was hoping that Jesus would rise up and overthrow the oppression. What better way than to stage an arrest? And so with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed his friend, his teacher, his rabbi, his Messiah. And if there had just been a couple more days and Judas had the opportunity to stand face to face with Jesus, how do you think Jesus would have responded? Would it have been harsh? Would it have been condemning and judging? Would Jesus' eyes just been narrow, filled with anger and hatred? No, I believe Jesus would be welcoming and loving in the midst of Judas' betrayal. That his unending love, his unending grace is greater than anything that we bring to this side of the line. That when we stand on that line and we're looking at Jesus and we're considering who is he? Jesus is not threatened by what we bring to the table. He's not threatened by our doubt. He's not threatened by our denial. He's not threatened by betrayal. He is loving and welcoming. The resurrection offers us a fresh start, a second chance, a do-over, a mulligan. So where do we go from here? If we're going to believe that the resurrection is true, if we're going to stand on that line and say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe he did exactly what he said he would do, where do we go from here? I think there's three things that we can do very simply and easily that don't even take a lot of effort. First, seek out someone to help you along your journey. And if you were going to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro, would you do it alone? No, you would seek out a guide. I mean, for goodness sake, we can't even go to a restaurant on the north side of town without asking Siri how to get there, right? Look for a guide. Ask someone to make this journey with you. I want to know more about Jesus. Seek someone out. The second thing is read the Bible. Read God's word. And I would, I would say start back at the beginning of Mark. We just read the ending of the story. You know how it ends. Mark reads like an, like an action flick. Miracle after miracle of Jesus doing amazing, wonderful things. And then next week, as Randy said, we're going to jump into a sermon series um, completing the book of Mark over the last year. And the third thing, seek someone out, read God's word. The third thing is pray. 
And there's really no magical formula, special thing that you have to do to pray. You're just having a chat. Just sharing with Jesus your feelings and your thoughts. Just take time to think about God. You see, the resurrection offers us hope. The resurrection offers us that second chance that Romans 8, verse 11 says, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That very same spirit, the power of the resurrection, are you following this? The power of the resurrection in Jesus lives in us. So anything that we bring to the table does not threaten God. He has overcome sin and death. He can overcome our doubts and our fears. He's not necessarily calling us to a physical death like he did. He's not necessarily calling us to some wildlife of a missionary running all over the globe. And I mean, it does happen sometimes, but that's not where he heads every time. And he's not necessarily asking us to give up some life in this world to be some monastic order out separated from the world. He is calling us to life. John 10.10 says that I have come to give you life and life more abundant. A couple weeks ago, Zach said a line that I absolutely loved. Speaking of Jesus, he said, could you try living for me? Since I already died for you. Romans 12 verse 1 tells us to offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. God is calling us to life. That through his death he is offering us life. Sin has us locked inside a tomb. A tomb of shame and despair. And as we stand at the line in the sand that Mark has drawn, and we confront Jesus, who is he? Is he who he said he would, is he who he said he was? And did he do exactly what he said he would do? If so, the invitation this morning is to step across that line. And recognize Jesus as our crucified king. Who is Jesus? Let's pray. God, your love and your grace is astounding. How could we ever imagine a story like this? It's bigger and grander than than we could ever conceive. Or that you saw the problem of sin and you decided that the best and really the only way to take care of that problem was to die on a cross. And you did it. And that cross was not the end. That you did exactly what you said you would do, that three days later... Jesus was alive. Lord, we praise you. We honor you 
for your glorious might and power and splendor. And this morning, Lord, as we stand face to face with you and we look into your loving eyes, into your welcoming arms, give us the courage to step across that line. We pray these things in your name. Amen.